So I'm wondering, integral in a way is the way to bridge the line of, let's say, spirituality and meditation, which traditionally it's been said that that will loosen up your entire life, right? And it will make it more whole in a way. But we've seen, you know, especially with your work, that that is not so and that, you know, exercising many ways, many lines of your life experience will actually do that more quickly. That is one thing that your work has just completely helped me with. Because it's easy to get stuck in one, you know, spirituality meditation line, and you get frustrated because somehow that's not doing it completely. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and often what it's doing is just state development. Yeah. And for reasons that nobody fully understands right now, these things are relatively independent. And all we're doing right now is going on evidence that we have, and the evidence that we have is pretty clear cut. And that's that, indeed, you can be quite advanced in terms of states and, say, even be a fully transmitted Zen master and not be much higher than even red or amber or orange, structurally, and yeah. vice versa. And that's sort of what my question is dealing with, kind of in a byway sort of a way. Yeah. Um, and do you feel like feeling that question? Oh, sure. About, well, my question is basically has to do with the idea of evil, quote-unquote. Yeah, the Darth Vader move. Yeah, in a broad sense. And it's confusing me a little bit, but if you... I don't know exactly where to start, but when you and Andrew Cohen are talking about ego and that, you know, has been sort of equated with the idea of evil, and that is, of course, not so in, in many ways, but that things can go wrong in ego development all throughout the stages that will then give expression to a shadow line of development in a way. And that's sort of the line that my question is touching upon. And sort of, is it possible that the shadow line or the shadow self starts working on its own and developing a sort of a pathological ego? Yeah. Um, Yeah, through through even non-dual states. And that's what my question is really about. Yeah, and again, we don't, obviously have that much empirical evidence on this, although it's out there, nobody has had this model so they could go out and actually start gathering the data and looking at it. But we can say a couple things, and then I'll tell you why I think the rest is speculative. But, well, first of all, the Darth Vader move, I use that in a couple of ways, and usually it's just a very, just a, a shorthand where I can get a certain point across without having to, you know, maybe take 5 or 10 or 15 minutes to go into all the subtleties of this thing. Right. So the people get it. He say the Darth Vader move. They understand that just because you're in a transpersonal structure, that, yeah. that doesn't mean that you're all good. Yeah. And it's just, it's just one of the ways of, of talking about the fact that these things are relatively independent. And it's also ways of talking about the fact that the shadow can develop right on up the spectrum, as far as we can tell. And I still find this to be true in looking at, in the transformations of consciousness, you know, the update that I'm doing, and looking at pathology in structures and pathology in states. But there's sort of two degrees of pathology, if you will. One is just something just flat out seriously broken, that there's a fragmentation, a dissociation, and... That shadow component is then very, very pronounced. And that 
is possible in the higher reaches of development, but becomes less and less likely simply because you're less and less likely to get much farther in development with that much energy being split off. Okay. So it almost answers in a roundabout way. Yeah. But the second type is one of the things that we mean by the Darth Vader move is that you can still have a very high cognitive development, even into paramind or metamind, which is to say around indigo, violet, and still have a relatively low moral stage of development. That is still possible. And so are you going to be fully enlightened under those circumstances? By definition, no, because we've redefined enlightenment, and that's to be one with all states and all structures at any given time in history. And if you are still at moral stage two, then there are all these structures over your head that you're not one with. And so by definition, you're not vertically enlightened. Okay, but it's possible for, let's say, that you have accessed a non-dual state where you've sort of been seeing that everything, quote-unquote, is one, but you're deciding to use that knowledge in a malevolent way by controlling others. I mean, that seems to be a very big problem. That seems to be a very big problem, and it does seem to be possible. Now, again, it just depends on the adjective you use, because if you want to say the non-dual state has been permanently stabilized as your primary identity, well, a lot of things have to happen for that to happen. And those things make the Darth Vader move much less likely. But it's not impossible. That's sort of what... But not impossible. Yes, from what we can tell, not impossible. And the simple fact is that all you need for a non-dual realization is to have experience of emptiness, Fundamental identity is causal emptiness, and to realize that that is one with everything that's arising. And that is you might be at amber or orange and have that realization. We have a lot of evidence that that is, in fact, the case. So you're going to be doing things that are, well, at the very least, not integral. They're not teal. They're not green, even. They're not turquoise. But the question then is, what do you mean by malevolent? Because that's another sort of twist in it, because that's another thing to say. It's one thing to say that, in a sense, I have a case of arrested development. I'm a good person at Orange yeah. versus I'm at Orange, and I've still got some shadow material from Red, and I really want to just hurt you for the fun of it. Yeah, yeah. And that's a different type of... Darth Vader. That's a malevolent, evil kind of thing. And that, again, it's not impossible. It becomes less and less likely. Okay, well, that brings up a question about, for example, Adida. And this is just a broad... Yeah. Because he is the one that I've I've read, and he's obviously extremely talented spiritually. Yeah, yeah. But the way that he understands it is that he wants to keep himself above his students. So, in my mind, that is a type of a Darth Vader move to me. I mean, how does he justify that in a way? You know, I can't understand that. Yeah, and these things are all, you know, these are very, very hard, and particularly when we're at the sort of edge of certain developmental capacities, it makes judgments harder. I'm totally in favor of judgments. People make them all the time, especially those people who say they don't. 
But I have a little bit more trouble with him. Even if he says he wants to keep himself above students, I don't necessarily have trouble with that. The problem is what seems to be his self-contradictory self-reporting. And I'll just give a couple of quick examples. I mean, every three or four years, he has another great, big, huge Satori that he defines as the you know, most deepest awakened experience that could ever be had. Nothing could ever be deeper than this until yeah. he has the one three years later, and he says, oh, this is deeper. Right. And then he says, that's the greatest, deepest, can never, ever, ever be deeper, and this is my full realization now. And even though my first of my 17 greatest realizations that could never be outdone was full in itself, for some reason, I had 17 more, but now this one is the, it's a very, very hard story to buy, that part of it. And it just strikes you as a bit of a boomeritis. I mean, only a boomer would come in making some of these kinds of claims. So it's very like a very egoic way of looking at it or feeling it. In a certain sense. And even though I have no doubt that he's in many ways transcended the typical self-contraction, there also seems to be, if nothing else, just a whole trace, a whole perfume of egoity and how he presents his own transcendence of ego. Yeah, and if you read it with that in mind, then it becomes, I mean, you can learn a lot from that guy. So that's, it's not a classical Darth Vader move in itself, I wouldn't say. Not quite. I just think it's, it's classic dysfunction. It's just dysfunctional. And, you know, he is, I, you, you get different stories from him, but the last I heard is he, when he had read some of the stuff I'd written about it, he said, well, yeah, Ken's right, but, you know, so what? I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. And, so, and that's sort of my sense about it, too. I mean, it doesn't fundamentally affect what he's doing. I mean, my whole sense about teachers is that once you realize that enlightenment does not carry with it competence yeah. in all 24 lines, it just doesn't. Enlightenment will not let you run a four-minute mile. It will not with your perfect body, and it won't let you understand the Schrodinger wave equation with your perfect mind, and so on. It just doesn't. Yeah. And, and, and we have just incontrovertible proof of that. Yeah, but so what you do is you go to a teacher of enlightenment with the understanding that you're going to learn a few select things from that teacher. Mm-hmm. And beyond that, they're not competent. And if they say they are, they're confused. And you don't need to believe that. That comes from an era when the guru was the local, you know, priest, minister, cop, and, you know, king. I mean, it's just entirely inappropriate and just factually incorrect as far as we can tell. So you want to basically go in with the understanding that what you're going to get from meditation teachers primarily is a state training that's going to let you shift your central identity from gross into subtle into causal and non-dual, either at a minimum as a temporary peak experience or kensho, or as a deeper series of peak experiences or satori, or as a series of permanent traits, plateau experiences. And then that's fine. And then some of them are becoming more integral and are also working with trying to help vertical development as well. 
and that is a whole different type of learning that actually isn't covered very well in the meditation manuals. Because what vertical development has to do is with understanding how different people have different perspectives and different values as they go through these different states. So you want to learn what's red like and what's amber like and what's teal like and what's indigo like and so on. You can't find that in any meditation text. And so if you happen upon it, you just sort of, you know, because you're a smart person and you're sort of figuring it out yourself. But it doesn't come with the territory of classic enlightenment. So we just have to reorient ourselves to our spiritual teachers. And what you can get from Adi Da is just exquisite understanding of non-dual, ever-present consciousness. And then as you move outside of that, the less and less his material becomes competent. Yeah, and just I'm feeling like one way that that sort of a teacher and why it puts undue responsibility on the student is that he kind of reels you in with this, you know, diamond carrot in the sky. Right. And he gets you to believe in him. And, you know, from my perspective, this where I'm sitting and understanding in the development, meditational development, spiritual development, it seems to be a little bit blown out of proportion. And and he's using that sort of, you know, look at my peacock feathers over here and I'll I'll, I'll show you the truth. And a lot of people can get fooled by that and really hurt by it. And in that sense, I feel like it is sort of a Darth Vader move that he's, it seems like he's consciously pulling it, you know, since he's given that response to your writings. That is a very real problem. And I think that it's something that he is, frankly, irresponsible about. And again, this is why I say my my fundamental problem with him is his capacity for self-reporting. It doesn't seem to be quite as good as you would expect from somebody who claims to be the greatest world teacher who ever lived or who ever could live. Now, I have some pretty high demands from somebody who has that (laughs) self-image. And one of them is that his fundamental claim has always been that the great Siddha we used to use as an example of a student going to a master and he rides up to the master, the master's on the ground, student rides up to him, is on his horse, and says, I heard the great sitters can enlighten somebody from the time it takes them to start to get off the horse before they hit the ground. And the guru says, oh, try it. So the student gets off the horse, and by the time he puts his foot on the ground, he's totally enlightened. Shakti pot, I can transmit to you the seventh stage, perfect realization. Well, if he can, why hasn't he done it to a single living human being? Because he can't. And you'd think, sooner or later, he would realize that he's got, at the very least, an inaccurate self-image. Hello? At least, at least, at least. At least, at least. So at least get your story straight. And he would say, you know, and the seventh stage, since he's the only one who's ever realized it as a permanent 24-hour ideal thing, He calls it the only given by me seventh stage. And I call it the never given by you seventh stage. (laughs) Because he's never given it. And so. Ron Hubbard, in a way, you know? Yeah, well, so that's my complaint. I don't doubt that in some ways and in some lines, he has a profound series of enlightenment and post enlightenment, horizontal enlightenment and post enlightenment experiences that are truly profound and some of his early writings are are just brilliant writing beautiful spiritual writing yeah and yet he has some self-image problem 
he has some self-reporting dysfunction and shadow elements, and his stories don't match his delivery. Provably, demonstrably. Not a single person. Well, I'm just going to quickly, I just feel like he's kind of representative, because we go into him, but he's sort of representative of one type of pathology that spiritual teachers can fall into, and I was sort of interested in knowing where on that state spectrum does that usually happen? It must happen right after you've... I've heard you talk with Andrew Cohen a bit. It's when you've had an awakening experience where you feel at one with the entire universe or yep. ex- existence. You sort of interpret it as if you're that only one, like you yep. become lodged with it, you know? Happens all the time. And here's the problem. I mean, that is so well understood, even in the traditions that in Mahayana Buddhism, for example, there is and has been a raging debate about compassion, the role and place of compassion in enlightenment, because not everybody realizes that compassion for both Mahayana and Vajrayana Buddhism is not an absolute. Compassion is what is called relative bodhicitta, and bodhi, B-O-D-H-I, means basically enlightened or enlightenment and chitta c h i t t a or c i t t a means consciousness or mind so bodhicitta basically is the enlightened mind so there's a relative bodhicitta and there's an absolute bodhicitta and absolute bodhicitta is shunata or emptiness and relative bodhicitta which has to do with the world of form is compassion so there's absolute, which is emptiness, and there's relative, which is compassion. And the practice of compassion will not lead you to enlightenment. Yeah. The way that I express this, and my root teacher in Chen, Chagatoku, I told him this metaphor once, and he loved it and kept using it, and I think he felt it sort of captured it really well, is that absolute bodhicitta awakens you from the dream, and relative bodhicitta prevents the dream from becoming a nightmare. So the practice of compassion makes your dream as relatively comfortable as it can be. And that is what your practice should be in the relative world. But it won't wake you up. No. Only emptiness will do that. So basically what you have in terms of absolute bodhicitta and relative bodhicitta is how those are going to fit together and which of those are going to be practicing at any given time. And in Mahayana, the argument, as I was saying, is that the debate was, well, should we have a person practice compassion before enlightenment, since it's not going to really lead you to enlightenment, or should we wait until after enlightenment? And since then, you'll be able to see things more clearly. And the argument for having it before enlightenment was, well, you have to practice compassion before you get enlightened, because once you get enlightened, you're not going to want to change anything. You, it's just, you'll see the absolute perfection of everything, and a certain motivation will just drop out of you. So the problem with a lot of folks is that, I mean, how much time did Adita actually spend with his primary teacher, Muktananda? A few weeks. 
Right. I mean, it's just it's ridiculous. You have to spend 10 years getting the relative side hammered into you, because once you awaken, man, you're one with it. You're everything. You're perfect. You cannot be changed. And so if you go into that and you're a little nerd with a really crummy capacity for self-reporting and you have a profound one-taste absolute experience, then you're just going to be an enlightened nerd. And it's just the way it works. And so I think that he needed a little more grinding down, a little more polishing of the rough edges, but he has some experiences early on, and nobody could tell you anything then at that point. So he had his greatest enlightenment at the Vedanta Temple, and that was it. And that was the first of, like I said, 17 (laughs) that could never be greater. And I'm going, boy, somebody is really doing a poor job of self-reporting here. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. Thank you very much for that because, I mean, it clears up a lot for me and it's a very interesting discussion because it seems to be the crux of a lot of yeah. you know, misunderstanding in the, in the tradition and spirituality yeah. in general. Yeah. But uh, would you say that then from your Mahayana, the dichotomy between the absolute and relative bodhicitta, basically would stages, could that be correlating with the development of compassion and then states would be the development of shunyata then? Well, in a sense, it is. Now, I don't want to draw that as a hard line, but that's why I think it's so important now that we do understand structures and states, because the moral line really is best understood as structure stages. And for most of the traditions, of course, Mahayana included, you have basically Shila, Dhyana, Prajna. Shila is ethics. And then dhyana is meditation. And then prajna is illumination or awakening. And so they have a full understanding of the fact that an ethical foundation is extremely important. But because they don't get the difference between states and structures very well, then it gets muddled. And I think one of the things that's going to really help is seeing just what you're talking about and what we're talking about, which is that really the relative form side of the street, you have to look at structures. And then the absolute side is, that's the ultimate state. And so that's exactly why I said earlier on, remember I said that what states are really all about is getting off. Yeah. In other words, you take a right-hand turn any place you want on those vertical chakras, and you can go straight into emptiness. Uh, you can get off at any stage you want. But now come back to the real world, and what are you going to do? Well, I hope right. how you practice compassion before you turned right, because he's not going to want to do it now. Well, and, you don't sort of have a choice, because once you get bitten by the idea that you can get off, you just go for that, you know, you know, I want to get off, you know. Compassion is good and all, but let's get off. <laughs> you know, and then you come back to it, hopefully, later on. Well, that's why most of the world's great teachings, including Vajrayana, won't let you. You go through the nine yanas, which is probably the most complete of the systems in the East, and that's the one in the Nyingmapa Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And what are the nine yanas? The first one is you have to do Hinayana, and that means you have to do all 108 monastic rules. You have to be able to do that for one to three years. That means no sex, no drinking, no smoking, no nothing. And you've got to do that. And then what's the second yana is the second half of Hinayana. And then the third yana is the practice of Tonglen, the practice of compassion. And that's actually one of the longest practices you do. And that's the third yana. 
Then the next three are the three outer tantras, and then the three highest stages, and the last ones you're allowed to do, are the inner tantras, the highest of which is Mahaati, or Zogchen. And even it has preliminaries. So most traditions won't let you. And this whole notion of crazy wisdom is a yeah. bunch of hogwash, a bunch of stuff that drunken, womanizing Americans dreamt up <laughs> to rationalize their boomerizes Buddhism. Oh, wow, yeah. Well, I've always felt like, you know, when I was reading Trungpa, it was, that was a very tantalizing idea, but the way I always felt about it was like, okay, well, not, no, not yet. <laughs> I don't really feel like I'm allowed to really think that way yet or something I, like that. I understand. Yeah, I understand. felt really out there. And Trump was out there, but again, I think it was one of, and I think you're allowed to say that, you know, drinking himself to death at age 47, what lesson was that? Don't drink yourself to death at age 47? I got the lesson. I I would have understood that if you just told me. I didn't need that demonstration day in and day out uh, of having probably the finest gifted Buddhist teacher ever to hit these shores lost to us at that tender age. That's not crazy wisdom, that's crazy stupidity. Yeah. Crazy stupidity. And that's very unfortunate because he was obviously an awesome person. Yeah. Oh, and a huge influence on my life, and I love the man dearly. But he is allowed to make a mistake. Yeah. And he just had some understanding of himself and alcohol, and I, I don't doubt that there were some higher karmas involved in it. I'm not putting it down as just being a drunk, but I am denying that it was merely and only crazy wisdom to help teach his students. Teach yeah. them what? It almost feels like he had a Jesus complex where he died for somebody's sins or almost something like that. In a no. Something like that's going on. And it doesn't... <laughs> see, what, what this whole integral approach allows us to do by realizing that the enlightened master does not mean you have a competence of every level and every line and every state and every quadrant. It doesn't. It's just a meaningless concept. And so what it does allow us to do is say, just like, you know, I go to this person to learn quantum mechanics, I go to this person to learn cooking, I go to this person to learn pole vault jumping, I go to this person, you know, to learn ballroom dancing. We go to some people to learn these extraordinary states of consciousness that help us understand ultimate realities, true, absolute, ultimate truths and realities. But they have their own stuff going as well. And what Integral does is, at the very least, help show us all of these things so we can be more truthful in our self-reporting. Yeah, yeah, and then second of all, say, well, here are the areas that I need some work in. And so I want to be able to work on those and not simply think that just by sitting down and going through all 1,720 koans that I... Now know everything there is to know. You don't. You now know everything there is to know about 1,720 koans. And a whole hell of a lot about how to transcend the major states of consciousness and find the unborn as your ever-present state and reality. There is no higher realization or understanding. But that's the unborn. That's emptiness. Now on the side of form... There's all this other stuff going on. And I don't buy that being a drunk makes you crazy wise. And I don't buy that Adi Da is that nobody can ever have a greater realization than he can because if so, we're all really fucked. 
Because if he can't enlighten a single person in the seventh stage, and there can be nobody higher than him, well, thank you very much for that message, buddy. We're all in big marketing. Good marketing. Yeah, Yeah, that's wonderful. (laughs) Only in America and only from a boomer could we get a little statement like that. All this stuff is... It's just for a more integral understanding that, in a strange way, both increases our humbleness and increases our confidence or our capacity to see greatness in ourselves, but also to realize the, the humbleness of how much there is out there. And it's, it's much healthier, the basic sanity. And I think Trungpa, you know, was an extraordinary embodiment of, you know, 90% of that. And 10% of him was just a little bit... Yeah. It's Meg here. I mean, you know, knowing people who have been badly hurt lifelong yeah. by people like Trungpa and others, I think is the very thrust behind the kind of work you've been doing, Ken, right, for the creation yeah. of this, because I'll quote the data didn't fit. You know, a teacher of mine who was a student with Kali Rinpoche yeah. and was talking about those years, uh, oh. I think the phrase that he used was, in, at that time, when the, the first, say, Tibetans, if you will, were really coming to North America, yeah. we had, this is a quote from uh, Ken McLeod, actually, we had the most traditional conservative elements of a pre-industrial feudal society, yeah. we're talking the 60s and 70s now, yeah. meeting with the most unconventional, crazy, if you like, um, yeah. uh, radical elements of a post-industrial society. Yeah. There were a few miscommunications. <laughs> and that kind of miscommunication <laughs> and fusing together, just like that, you know, what happens with them from pre-modernity to modernity, of fusing out the different quadrants. Yeah. We're being able to untangle this ball of wool. Yeah. And it's that yeah, that the Wilbur Coombs lattice is an example yeah. of. Yeah. And helps us okay. sort of untangle that which is woven yeah. together. And, and disentangle what, uh, say, a devotional practice, which may be a legitimate practice, right. with the actual person in front of you and what they are resonating with. Yeah, yeah, good, all good points. And yeah. Ken McLeod, I just adore Ken. I just, I, I love him, and I, I spent a lot of time studying with Kalu, and of course got to know Ken quite well. And yes. because he was so, and is so smart and savvy, he was more open to getting hurt because he could see some of these different currents. Mm-hmm. But a whole lot of other people would just go into it sort of blind and just accept this is this is this must be the absolute truth and so on. And so for people that could really see and were awake both horizontally and vertically to a, a good degree like Ken was, would get caught in the crossfire in a way that other people who didn't even see the crossfire at least, you know, think they didn't get hurt. Where they, they have a bunch of subconscious bullets lodged in their mind. Right. So he, I, I think Ken handled himself very gracefully in some very difficult times. And he's, he's doing some wonderful work now. Yes, he is. I, I, I hope to get him. with him. He's, he's doing some great stuff. Yeah. yeah. We hope to get him uh, back out here and, and, and involved in uh, into a spiritual center. Well, that would be great. Yeah, yeah. Ken, I'm struck by a line from Merton in all this, you know, a Western voice in it. And he says, there's nothing more dangerous than a contemplative without direction. So you mentioning humility and, and the case of Adi Da, uh, it yeah. really struck me as, a, as just a, this blistering line from Merton. I think so. I think we only tend to see, and again, somebody like Adi Da, who's obviously so enormously talented, but he actually, the actual amount of time he spent with his teachers is, again, measured in months. And that's just not the kind of full transmission 
of the traditions that's going to allow you to transcend and integrate them, transcend and include them, because there's just a whole lot of stuff you're not including, and that includes their preliminary practices, and that's something that we clearly want to take seriously. And by looking at these different types of development, including state development as well as structure development, then we can both honor what the traditions were doing and, and make use of the extraordinary accumulated wisdom and experience that they've given us, but also take the next step because spirit continues to unfold and there is a fourth turning. And this seems to me as good a part of that fourth turning as anything. And I think that that's exactly what we're seeing. It's this kind of an integral turning now that's available to all of the world's spiritual traditions. But so many of them indeed are still stuck in a pre industrial, feudalistic, mythic, agrarian, patriarchal, I mean, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And to confuse those relative values with the only values that you have to embrace in order to be enlightened, that's just way, way, way out of line. And what we want for catechism is, of course, to make some of those things appropriate at earlier stages of development, but then to let those traditions call on their own higher components which are even unfolding right now. You want to see where the, the higher components of Christianity are unfolding. You look at the Thomas Meritons, and you look at the Thomas Keatings, and that is where Christianity is self-unfolding in its own fourth turning, or however many you want to count. And that's what we want to help them do. And so that's the exciting thing about Integral, is increasing both that, in a sense, wonderful grandeur of it all, coupled with just a extraordinary humbleness about how, you know, big on the one hand we are with big mind and how small we are on the other in terms of, of ever being able to simply master it so much that you can never claim you can simply, you know, boss the whole world around because you're the perfect master that can never, ever, ever, ever be bettered. I have a question regarding Christianity and people that are enmeshed in their particular tradition. And I've heard you touch on it a little bit, you know, because I, you know, I listen to Integral Naked all the time and sure. get the videos, your guys' meeting, all the teachers together, and it's brilliant and wonderful. But sort of from my perspective, holding on to a tradition, how that's something that trying to loosen that up in order to have much more of a sort of, I don't know any better word, but down-to-earth discussion about all these things, because once... Because this seems to me to be an, just another filter. How do you, as you know, coming from all traditions or, or being who you are, how do you deal with that after bringing all these people together, sort of loosening their adherence to their tradition up? Because that's a little bit to me, it's, you know, they're holding on to something maybe. I don't know. Well, how do you think that? I mean, because those are sort of the ones that are kind of loosened from the more rigid aspects exactly. of what you think. Well, definitely, and they're mystics in the best sense of the word. I guess it's just where I'm at. I feel like, okay, for me, what that does is it gives me, like I was mentioning, the diamond carrot in the sky. If you hold on to a robe or a title or a priest of some sort, you attract that energy that can gain knowledge through that person, perhaps. But in general sense, it seems to me that it just creates division at the very baseline. Right, so what, what's your, in a sense, it's, you know, it's what would be your... Actually. Can, can I offer an observation? Yeah. Sure. Uh, which is, I think, that that kind of holding on an attachment to one thing that you're referring to is essentially exiting amber structure. 
where you feel there has to be, you know, one feels there has to be one right way, one teacher, one path, et cetera, et cetera. And that that disengagement can happen within any religious formation. It can happen within Islam. It can happen within um, Christianity. You know, we've got a little... um, a new CBC television series here in Canada called Little Mosque on the Prairie, <laughs> which, is, which is causing some waves. And oh, it's yeah. really a gentle green version of the whole thing. And for, yeah. for many people, will allow them to see Islam as something other than terrorists. Right. So that disengagement from infusion, with, there's only one way to do it, and it just happens to be my way, you idiot, um, <laughs> it's something that can happen in, in all lines. What, what I see in myself and others is that when we do that in the West, we tend to say that tends to occur within the context of one religious faith or no religious faith. Right. And therefore, you reject that faith context as well. So rather than going from amber to orange to green to whatever Christianity, right. you jump rivers. And you right. say, well, Christianity sucks, so I'll go and be Buddhist. Right. <laughs> and with, with any luck, you, you're, you're going to come across a version of Buddhism that is post-amber. Yep. But we tend to confuse the vertical structure shift with the modality of expression. Well, and that's what we're hoping out of the conveyor belt. Is yeah. That people, yeah, we'll get an understanding of that and understand mm-hmm. that not only is it sort of certain adults going through amber and post-amber, but everybody's born at square one. Yeah. And so the conveyor belt has got to take people all the way from that infrared and magenta and red levels all the way through amber and green and so on. I mean, that, that's uh, something that we have to repeat mm-hmm. with every birth. And that's what's so extraordinary about it. Yeah. And if we don't get that conveyor belt down then we are in deep, deep trouble. And the problem, of course, with um, the world's religions, for example, is that most people think of the world's religions as amber. Yeah. And orange, is, is they think of as science. And so you've got religion at this, you know, is for low-level, stupid people, and Probably science is for the smarter people. Yeah. And that's just so screwed up. There's a amber version of religion and science, there's an orange version of religion and science, there's a green version of religion and science and art, etc. And until we get that down, we're in deep trouble because people still really think that when they say God or spirit or something, that they mean the same thing. Instead of realizing that there are 12 gods, 12 goddesses, 12 spirit, 12 ultimate realities, if we're just using 12 structures, 12 levels. Mm -hmm. And understanding that has got to be central to the world being able to live with itself because this is not going away and everybody being born you know at square one being born at structure one being born at chakra one and having to negotiate all of those means that this is something that arises with every human being and right now we have people at war with dimensions of themselves every human being has got some chakra trying to wipe out another chakra I mean, it's, it's insane. Yeah, yeah. But, but this is this is our state now. Well, the the orange ceiling, as you turn to it, the orange amber ceiling, that is sort of you know redirecting all energies. Yeah. Um, outside of that is, is is a huge issue. It's, it's Isn't it? my hunch that some of the responses to that are not going to come from within the Western tradition. They're going to come from other traditions. Yeah. Because they will have been... they will not have the same memories of the horrors, if you like, yeah. that come to it from our tradition, from our sort of cultural milieu. 
Where do you think it might come from? Uh, well, this sounds really, really bizarre, but I think Islam might have something to do with it. In a funny kind of way, because there's so much, there's so much red amber there, but, you know, going on, right, right. that the energy and movement required to overcome that right. will infuse orange with a certain sense of spirituality it doesn't have in the West. So another way of putting that, and that's a very provocative thesis, I must it's say. It's provocative, and it's designed to be somewhat. So I, this is a hunching. Is there evidence? No. No, that's okay. But, 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 but I mean, the, but the, the, the blue-red issues are so huge yeah, yeah, yeah. for everybody, in, including Muslims at orange and green and so forth. And because there is some legitimate, in my view, perceptions of some of the flaws that uh, things have been left behind when blue-orange has been rejected in the West, right. they're going to be, you know, uh, making some very pertinent observations and will carry through a sense of the holy and the sacred into orange, yeah. which we yeah. kind of lost. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's, <laughs> it's often the things that scare you the most that have the, the seeds of the next age in them. Well, the one part of that that I could certainly agree with, I'd have to ponder on that a bit simply because of its wonderfully provocative nature, is that if the Muslim Islamic culture does figure out a way to handle that extraordinary red, amber, orange axis in its own culture, because it, it is by, you know, by far that's the, the most difficult yeah. one, if it can figure out how to do that, then that's going to blow it wide open for virtually everybody else, mm-hmm. because that is just the stickiest of all. And I would certainly say that Islam's going to be part of the solution or we're going to continue to just kill each other. Uh, I, I have no estimate on the likelihood of that happening. Uh, <laughs> but it is certainly an area where there's a huge sort of a bottleneck of energy going on. And when that's opened up in a different cultural context, there may be some interesting possibilities. Maybe it's only a, not more, more than a hope, but anyway. Uh, yeah. It's always good to stretch your mind by being provocative. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs>